amazing teaching. Over that away, down in the hall and to your right, and keep walking. Someone will find you, I'm sure. If you end up back in the back storage space, turn around. So it's not where you're supposed to be. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Been hanging in there? A little soggy? It rains sometimes, so life happens. Uh, I don't know about you, but first off, I just really, really love that song that we just sang. I love all those songs that we sang, but <clears throat> the reality that God is truly like unprecedented, which is a word that got just thrown around all in 2020. And Don actually wrote that song, and it's just that this reality that our, our God is, there is no one like Jesus. There's no one like the God that we serve. And everybody can say all these things and blah, 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 but there's only one true God. And we worship Jesus. And so I'm just, it just makes me really happy. And I'm really excited just to be here because we get to open up the Bible and we get to let the Holy Spirit teach us what's in it. And so for me, I know I get excited about the Bible, but I get really, really excited to join you in reading through and studying through the book of Hebrews, which is a very hard book and has a lot of meat in it. And we're going to dive into something today that is going to, um, we get to practice saying a really cool name. Two really cool names we're going to hear today. But uh, by the end of the day, you'll be able to say Melchizedek and uh, maybe Melchizedekian priesthood. And so you'll be able to throw that word around and be like, look how knowledgeable I am about hard words in the Bible. But really what we're looking at is in the book of Hebrews, we've got to remember that it is this book. It was probably a sermon that is given to us today, and it is calling people back to Jesus who are at risk of drifting away. And we are looking at who is Jesus. And really, we're answering the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus asked his disciples the same question, who do you say that I am? And the answer to that question, it's my uh, opinion, that the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is the most important answer that any human can ever give, ever. Because the answer to that question determines whether you spend, where you spend eternity. And we can dance around all these things and, and, and discuss and debate things, but the Bible teaches that there is a righteous God who requires uh, justice for our sin. And so he's given it to us in the Lord Jesus. And who is this Jesus? And our answer to that question is incredibly important because when I say that I worship Jesus of Nazareth and a Mormon says he worshiped Jesus of Nazareth, we're talking about two different people. When I say I worship Jesus, I worship the Jesus who was given to us, revealed to us in the word of God, who is God made flesh and dwelt among us. So the answer to that is really important. And what we're going to get in chapter 7, and really we're just going to be in the first 10 verses today, is a whole mountain of information about who Jesus is. And so as we walk away from here, we're going to go on a deep dive, and you're going to have to engage your heart, and you're going to have to turn your brain on. So if you need more coffee, go get some. It's all right. And every time you read the Bible, you want to open your heart, engage your mind, and study it. And that's what we're going to do. But as we do that, we're going to learn more about who Jesus is. And that's deeply important to us, and we're going to see some of why here as we walk through this passage. So, with that, let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's dive into Hebrews chapter 7. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are oh, unprecedented, doesn't even begin. And we have no language, all of the words that have ever been spoken in all of the languages by all of the people could never begin to express how marvelous you are. And that the, the reality that, that we are incapable of expressing your majesty with human language is just awesome. And we come to you today, and I just, I need you, Lord Jesus. We need you. We need to understand who you are 
We need to worship you in spirit and in truth. We do not worship an idea, Lord. We worship the one true God. We worship the triune God. We worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we come to you today in need of your help. We need you to keep us from drifting away. We need you to draw us to yourself. We need you to encourage us and to challenge us and to rebuke us and to grow us and to transform us into the humans that you want us to be. We need you to help us be light in a dark world. We need you to help us stand firm in the truth of who you are. We need you to encourage us and embolden us to speak the truth in love and to preach Christ to a fallen and just broken world. We need you to help us love our neighbors, love our wives, love our kids, love our brothers and sisters, love our moms and dads. We just need you, Jesus. So before we open up Hebrews, I just want you to take a moment and just confess your need to Jesus. Confess that we need him. Ask him to reveal himself to you today. And as we always do, I want you to pray for someone nearby. If you're if your arm is around someone's shoulder or holding someone's hand, pray for that person. If they are behind you and you don't know their name, pray for them that Jesus would reveal himself to them today. Lord, we come to you to ask you real things in real time. We have real, real people with real needs and we serve a real God. You are truly here. You indwell us. We are not just making all this up or inventing some kind of experience. We're here to worship our creator. And that is what we are doing. Would you help us to unearth the truth that is in this chapter, these first 10 verses, as we look at this person, Melchizedek, and as we just unearth some of the wonders of who you are, Jesus. Help us. We ask these things in your risen name. Amen. All right, so the author of Hebrews... Remember, he is, I don't know who wrote it. It's he, she. I always joke that it's Paul's wife. It's a joke. I mean, I don't know who wrote it. Um, don't get your feelings hurt or whatever or get all mad at me. I just I always joke that Paul's wife wrote it because Paul wasn't married. Anyway, so all that to say. Um, maybe Peter's wife wrote it. I don't know who wrote it. All I know is it's in the Bible, and so we're reading it. And whoever wrote it, the author, says some things in it that we need to pay attention to. One of them is that, uh, verse chapter 2, verse 1 says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. And this idea of, of drifting away from who Christ is, that these people who were believers, these Hebrews who were believers, were getting drawn out by all these other things. There were Jews who were saying, no, you've got to come worship Christ this way. And, and Hebrews is really written to Jewish people so that they can comprehend who the Messiah is and that Jesus is superior to all of these things and it addresses so many different things. He's superior to angels, superior to Moses. And he's going into this idea of him being the great high priest that Christ is the high priest is superior to the Levitical high priesthood. And so as he's rolling into that, uh, he's halfway through chapter 5, and he kind of stops that Trump talked about last week. He's like, hold on, i got to pump the brakes for a second because you guys have got to grow up. I, got to, I want to tell you guys about Melchizedek. He ends up here in, uh, this is 5 verse oh, um, 6, um, 1, 4, whatever. No one takes this honor upon himself, and he must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which is from Psalm 110. It says, during the days of his life on earth, 
Uh, we're going to skip down actually to verse 9. It says, Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn, right? <laughs> so it basically comes in and says, I want to give you all this really heavy information, but you guys over here, like, you're playing in the sand, and I need you in the classroom. And so he's like, you need to kind of, I need you to grow up. You should be eating meat, and you're just, you're still eating milk, and you're still having to go over the same things. And he goes through that in chapter 6 that Treb has gone over. Then at the end of 6, rolls into, he's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So verse 19 of chapter 6 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul that we talked about last week, firm and secure. This anchor does what? Enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, is entered on our behalf. So the, the imagery here is of the temple, and you have the most holy place that was separated by this very thick curtain that Treb talked about last week that was torn, and we're going to get more into that later. But that this anchor is, our hope is anchored in the very presence of God. And that has something to do with this guy, Melchizedek. And so we're going to learn who this guy is in these next 10 verses. And it's, I find it incredibly fascinating. Hopefully you do. If you go to sleep, just don't snore. But we're going to dive into this. And the first thing we're going to do is going to practice saying the name Melchizedek. Can everyone say it? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Okay, if it helps, his, uh, his name means a king of righteousness, right? Melech means king of, and, and Zedek means righteous. And so he's a king of righteousness. We'll see that in just a second. Melchizedek. And the whole thing is called the Melchizedekian priesthood. Melchizedekian priesthood. You got that? Okay, great. Just write it down in a note card and work on it. But anyway, this is what we're going to talk about. This is spiritual meat, okay? This is not like, okay, the gospel is a four-year-old can understand the gospel. And yet no human has ever plumbed the depths or even begun to comprehend the fullness of the gospel, Right? This is stuff that most people don't ever even talk about. Most people, if they've never even read Hebrews, would never even know who Melchizedek is. And honestly, we're going to go look at this teeny little two verses in Genesis. And if Psalm 110 wasn't written and Hebrews wasn't written, no one would even know who he was. But we're going to know and we're going to find out today. So let's dive in. This is Hebrews 7.1. Who says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth or a tithe from the people. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth or a tithe from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. All right, all clear? So... When we tell you we want you to read the Bible, I want you to read the Bible. And by the way, this is an open invitation. If you don't know what to read the Bible, our church always has a Bible reading plan that we have. We print little things. It's not super complicated. We're going through the Psalms this summer, one Psalm a day, super easy. We print up a reading plan, and we have like uh, discussion questions and things like that. So if you want to do that, um, find me or ask somebody, and uh, we will do it together. When you read the Bible, 
it really helps to read something and then to then dive in, which is what we're going to do. We're breaking here and we're diving down, right? So it's like when you're fishing and you're trolling and it's just right behind you. You're kind of getting surface stuff. We are not doing that. We are parking the boat and we are dropping the line deep, okay? So just hold on to it because when you read this, you're like, I don't, whatever. I'm going to go get some more coffee. Then that's kind of what you feel. And that happens a lot of times when we read the Bible and we don't stop and study. So that's what we're going to do with stop and study. Okay. This Melchizedek, what do we know about him? He's a king. King of where? King of Salem. Where's Salem? Nobody's entirely sure. Some people think that Salem was uh, the, the uh, uh, old word for Jerusalem. He could have been king of the, the little city that was where Jerusalem ended up being. I mean, may very well be true. I don't know. Um, Probably so. I don't want to go down that rabbit shell too much because the point of it is that he's the king of peace. But he's a king of Salem, and he's also a priest, which is not typically what happens. He's a priest of who? He's a priest of the God Most High. There's only one of those. And he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. What was the defeat of the kings? We're going to go back and find out. And Abraham gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. So the author says, here's what's important. His name means king of righteousness. Like, I'm not just making that up. He says it right here. And then also, king of Salem means king of peace. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness, and he is king of peace. He is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God who remains a priest forever. What does that mean? Let's go find out. In order to do that, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles... If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one next to you or open it up on your phone or whatever. But we're always going to be in this uh, wonderful book. So Genesis 14, right? You've got, you've got creation, and then you've got fall, the fall, and then you have uh, the horrible wickedness in the world. Then you have a flood. And you have the world kind of trying to rebuild itself. You've got the Tower of Babel, humanity saying, look how awesome we are. And then God calls this one guy out, Abram. And so he pulls this guy out of Ur of the Chaldeans and he says, I'm going to send my Redeemer through you. And it starts this great redemptive story that arcs throughout the whole rest of the Bible. This guy, Abraham, who was a giant hot mess, God is going to redeem the world through him. He comes to him when he and his wife are old, and he says, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of descendants. Read Genesis and read the story. But he has his nephew, Lot. And Lot and him get separate. They come to the land where he told him. They separate, and, and Lot goes down to a place called Sodom, which if you keep reading, you'll realize that's not a real good, good place to be. So, and uh, while he's there, there are all of these kings, kings from the west and kings from the east, and these guys rebel against these other kings, and they fight a battle, and all this is in Genesis chapter 14. And when we get there, what happens is that these kings have come, and they've taken uh, the town of Sodom, and they've captured Lot and his family and all of his stuff, and they have carried them off. And somebody comes and tells Abram, hey, somebody captured Lot, you got to go rescue him. So Abram meant, uh, launches this big rescue plan, and uh, he goes and he saves, defeats these kings, battles these kings, saves Lot out of captivity, and that's where we end up in Genesis 14, 17. And it says, after Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer, it's another fun word, Keterleomer, and if you want to name your kid something cool, I, I dare you. Just kidding. Please don't name him that. But um, from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, the valley of Sodom, or the king of Sodom came out. The king of Sodom had been defeated and been carried off and was now freed because of Abram. Came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. So Abram defeats these guys. This king of Sodom comes out to meet him. Then we've got two verses of this guy, Melchizedek. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Done. That's it. That's all he's in there. And then we move on. Rest of, rest of Genesis, rest of the Old Testament. Two verses. That's all Melchizedek gets until Psalm 110 is written, and then Hebrews is written. So who is this guy? Well, first off, we know that he is a Gentile. How do we know that he's a Gentile? Because the Jew is the descendant of Abraham. The Jew is the descendant of Abraham. And Abraham had no children, so Melchizedek is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. He's also a king of this place called Salem. And what does he bring out? Bread and wine. Now, bread and wine are obviously very common, right? And so uh, they drank a lot of wine. They ate a lot of bread. Um, but if I say the words bread and wine to you today, what do you think of? Communion, right? Okay. I'm not going down some kind of weird theological rabbit trail because the Bible doesn't say that they took communion. Okay. I'm not saying they took communion. So don't go there. Don't say Brandon says that. No, there's like weird some pre-incarnate Christ or whatever. You can go into all these kind of rabbit trails. Just get a, get a commentary and just soak your head in it. It's great. But the Bible says that he brought out bread and wine. And I just think it's really cool that I like the Bible because there's things in it that are way beyond our comprehension. I don't know exactly what's happening here. I think that Melchizedek is probably bringing out bread because he's hungry and wine because he's thirsty. But there's a lot of both and in the Bible. And part of me wants to really think that somehow Abram and Melchizedek are looking forward to the Redeemer coming. I don't know that that's in there. That's not in there. Don't, I'm just saying, when I read that, I think, that's pretty cool. Like, when we take bread and wine, what do we do? We are proclaiming his coming, right? We're, we are uh, claiming the promise that our Redeemer is coming back. And so, please don't go on a weird rabbit trail or anything or say that I said something weird, but I just think that's cool. I wanted to point that out. So, just leave that back there and we're just going to move forward. He was a king and he's also a priest. Of who? Well, priest has to be a priest of something. What does a priest do? A priest intercedes, right? You've got the people, you've got some kind of deity, and you've got the priest standing in between the people and the deity. But Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. It's the first time this name is used for God in the book of Genesis. And so he is a priest of God Most High. So God had a priest before he had Levites. Because the Levites, they're not around yet. It's fascinating. And what does he do? He blesses Abram. His name's Abram, changes to Abraham in Genesis 17. You can read that for your homework. And he says, blessed be Abram by who? By God most high. Who is who? He's the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high. So he blesses Abram. And then he, and blessed be God most high. He blesses the Lord who delivered your enemies into your hand. He gives uh, credit for Abram defeating these kings that it wasn't Abram who did it, but it was the Lord. And then Abram gives him a tenth or a tithe of everything. So he tithes to him. He basically does an act of worship and, and Melchizedek receives this act of worship, right? Like a priest would do. So let's jump back into Hebrews chapter 7. Who has already gone and explained this in the first three verses, who this guy was. Melchizedek, king of Salem. And this is who he was. Abraham gives him a tent. So let's look at what he's done here. And he has met Abraham. He's blessed Abraham. He's received from Abraham this tithe. And so the author in, in verse 2 goes about, and he says, all right, here's what I want you to know, though. The, his name means king of righteousness. And his name means king of peace. 
So when it says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. There's something in the Bible called a, a type. And what a type is, is it is a, a picture of something else. So Melchizedek is a, is a type of Christ. He's like a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament that we see that points us to a greater truth. Uh, Joseph is a type of Christ, right? He goes and, and, and he has all these markers in his life that are so much like the life of Jesus. He is a type or a picture of Christ that we can then look at Christ and learn something about that. You, there's, it's the, the Old Testament is full of all of these pictures of things. Even the, We're going to look at how the law works and the sacrificial system. They're all pointing to Jesus. So Melchizedek is this picture of a priest, a certain kind of priest. And in the story of, of uh, Genesis, everybody's got uh, begat somebody, right? This guy came from this man. Everybody's got a, a dad that he came from and then he died. That's the Genesis, right? It's all over the book. This person and this person and then they died. This person and this guy, this son, and then this son lived this long and then they died. And it's all through, no, all these genealogies in Genesis. And then you got this one guy who's got nothing. It's like they're acting on the stage and Melchizedek just walks out. He just comes on stage for like two minutes. He's got some bread. He's got some wine. High fives, Abram. Way to go. Bless you. Take your tenth. All right, off the stage. Done. We don't hear about him until Psalm 110. Nothing. Crickets. Who is this guy? So like in the story of Genesis, he doesn't have a father or mother. In the story of Genesis, he's without genealogy. In the story of Genesis, he's without beginning of days or end of life. So like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Meaning, like the Son of God, he sort of comes in, there's not as, as much explanation of where he came from. Where does this guy come from? I've got all these questions. When did he become a priest? Like, did, what did he wear? Who is this? He's very mysterious. And so Melchizedek is pointing us to Jesus, that he is like Jesus in the story of Genesis, without father and mother, without genealogy. Like Melchizedek had a mom and a dad. And he lived a life and then he died and we'll see him in glory. And so, but in the story of Genesis, he doesn't. So he sticks out because of that. And so Jesus now, because we know that he's talking about Jesus because we've read the first chapter of Hebrews, where he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so we know that he is saying that Melchizedek is like the Son of God, like Jesus, and that in the story he doesn't have all these connections. So why does it say he remains a priest forever? So what does a priest do? We already looked at that, right? He intercedes for people, intercedes between a deity. Now he's going to start making in the next section here from 4 through the rest of uh, through 10, he's going to start then comparing Melchizedek to the Levitical priesthood, Right? So they had a beginning and an end. They came and the law of Moses was started and they, they came out of Egypt and then they had the law written and then they all followed the law and you had this uh, tribe of Israel who they became the priest and they uh, did all the official priestly stuff and they received the tithes and the help of the offerings and they managed the temple, etc., etc. And then that priesthood ended and it ended with a person. That person is Jesus. And that is what he is working toward here in this passage. So, verse 4. He says, just think how great he, Melchizedek, was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. So he says, okay, the law says that 
everybody gives a tenth. They give a tenth of their grain. They give a tenth of all these things that was mainly used for the running so that the, uh, they could run the temple. And so the Levites were not allowed to have land that they tilled, really, so they are, all their provision came from the people. So they gave 10% so the Levites didn't starve to death because if your priesthood starves to death, well, they're not going to be there. So, so it, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, they, they collect it. But they get it from their brothers. And they're all descendants of Abraham. See, they're all on this level playing field. The Levites were just Jews like everybody else. They're just Israelites. But this man, in verse 6, however, this man, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi. So he is not a Levitical priest. But he collected a tithe or a tenth from Abraham. And then he blessed Abraham, who had the promises of God. So even though he wasn't a priest, he, uh, a, a Levite, he collected the tithe. He uh, officiated his priestly duty. And then in verse 7, And without doubt, the lesser person, Levi or Abraham, is blessed by the greater. So in the Abraham-Melchizedek dynamic, who is the greater person? Melchizedek. In the Levi-Melchizedek comparison, who is greater Melchizedek, because Melchizedek's priesthood started before Abraham. He was already a priest of the Most High God when Abraham comes into the story, right? And his priesthood is still going on today. How? Well, that's what the rest of this chapter is going to discuss. So, you have this guy, Melchizedek, who is greater than Levi and greater than Abraham. So in verse 8 it says, in one case... The tenth is collected by men who died. These are the Levites. So they gave the, the, the Levites, they all received the, the stuff, but then they all died. They're all gone. Just guys that die. I mean, they're not just guys. They're precious in God's sight and all these things, but they're humans who just die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. So this other tithe was received Melchizedek. And in the story, remember, it doesn't mention his death. I don't know that Levi, I think Melchizedek died like everybody else. But in the story of Genesis, because his genealogy and his death are not recorded. He kind of comes into the story and leaves the story, and he's very mysterious. Like, where did he come from and where is he going? And in that same way, Jesus is a priest like that. That's why when, he comes, when Jesus comes to town, all the religious people are like, who are you? You're the guy from Nazareth? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mom Mary and his brothers James? And is this just the Jesus guy, right? From who is this guy? Why does he have authority? That's why when Jesus is in the Gospels, they're not getting it because he comes out of nowhere from their perspective. He obviously doesn't come out of nowhere, but from their perspective, that's what's happening. So you have these, the tithe is collected by these guys who die, Levi, but in the other case, him who's declared to be living, Melchizedek. And one could even say that Levi, who collects this tithe, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek was, met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So he's saying, you know, you could even say that it's like Levi is paying, the, the Levites are paying the tithe to Melchizedek because they are Abraham's descendants. So it's almost like the Levites were paying the tithe to Melchizedek. So you see the case that he's making is that this guy, Melchizedek, his priesthood is greater than or superior to the priesthood of the Levites. We've got to remember that for a Jew, this is mind-blowing. Because their entire concept of their relationship with God is they know God through the system, right? They have this system of offerings, this system of festivals. It's a very detailed and very exact system of worship that is laid out in the law. 
You do this on this day, you do this on that day, you do this this way. If you do this, you do that. If you do this, you do that. And it's very specific. But the Jews had come to worship God through the system as opposed to just worshiping God. And that was causing this giant, um, oh, like in the, in, the, in the language of Hebrews, this, these briars that were like grabbing onto their feet, keeping them from running to the Messiah. They were believing that they could know God through the system of the institution as opposed to the spirit of God who indwells them and enables them to worship him in spirit and in truth. That happens today. There are many people who think, well, I'm basically a good person. I go to church. I read my Bible. I give. Well, that's not what saves you. Sorry. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You're saved through faith, and that faith is a conduit through which God's grace comes in and regenerates you who is dead in your sins to make you alive in righteousness. It is not because you give. Matter of fact, if I had to choose between you having faith in Jesus or giving to the church, give me faith, please. I don't know how much of dead people are giving us money. Who cares? Jeez. Anyway, but churches are full of dead people giving money. Anyway, side note. So maybe that's the note. Maybe it's not the side note. So anyway, he's setting up this person, Melchizedek. And in the next uh, 11 through 20, whatever it is, through the end of the chapter, he's going to then look at how is Jesus like this Melchizedek and what are the ramifications of that. So for us today... I want to just zero in on just a few things. So when you read a passage like this, you think, all right, I mean, really? This is great. I need to go now read the news or something about it because this is not helping me any. So when you read the Bible, I'm telling you that God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it's useful for all kinds of things. And this passage right here has something to teach us about who? Jesus. Yes, it has something to teach us about Melchizedek, but who does Melchizedek teach us about? Melchizedek teaches us about Jesus. So don't miss the point. This is about Jesus. It's not just about Melchizedek. So if we say, okay, Melchizedek is like this, that means Jesus is like that, but greater. Melchizedek is what? He's a king. Who is Jesus? He's a king. Melchizedek is a king of peace. What is Jesus? He's a king of peace. He is a priest. Well, how is Jesus a priest? That's going to get explained really almost through the whole rest of the book. And he is a king of priest, uh, excuse me, a king of peace, and he is a king of righteousness. So Jesus is a king of righteousness. What does Melchizedek do? Well, he meets. He goes and he meets Abraham where he is. Then what does he do? He shares a meal with him. And then what does he do? He blesses Abraham. And then what does he do? He receives his act of worship. This is what Jesus does. Jesus is our king. He is our king of righteousness. He is our king of peace. He meets us where we're at. He blesses us and he receives our worship. So what does it mean that Jesus is a king? Well, I don't actually want to look at that question. I want to ask another question. I want to say, what does it mean to you that Jesus is your king? Because we can talk way up here and say, yes, Jesus is a king. And we can look at pictures and we can say the king is returning and but when Paul writes to Timothy and he's writing about how much of a sinner he is, this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Man, that's a great verse. Because Paul was awesome. 
Let's be honest. If you read Paul's writings, he was incredible. Genius, loved the Lord with all his heart, was a truly remarkable human in every way, shape, and form. And he says, I'm, I, am, I am the worst. What a place to be. Verse 16 says, But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience <laughs> as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And then he has this, he's, the next phrase is so wonderful. What's he going to say after that? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the king eternal. And like Melchizedek kind of came out of nowhere and has no beginning and no end, Jesus is an eternal king. What does a king do? A king rules. A king reigns. If a king is not ruling and reigning, he's not a king. He's just a dude who says he's a king. So my question is this. Does Jesus rule in your heart? And I know that I'm going a little bit off of what this is. This is not a passage about Jesus reigning in your heart. I get it. But guess what? This is a passage that says Jesus is the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. So is he your king? Is he? Because if he's your king, guess who has the right to rule in your life? Not you. You don't have any rights. Can I say that to you again? You don't have any rights. And we live in a world and in a time that is so self-absorbed with our rights that we don't give a... We don't care. Break. We don't care who we run over. We don't care who we upset. And we do not care who gets their feelings hurt or whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing as long as my rights are being satisfied. That's called blasphemy. Because Jesus is the king. To whom is all of our honor and our, uh, our homage and our praise directed to? It's only supposed to be directed to him. To whom should we bow our knee? Christ alone. To whom should we give our heart and our soul and our time and our talent and our treasure? To our king. Because he is the king of righteousness. Righteousness means that he is basically right in God's eyes. He is the way that things ought to be. When I look at Jesus, I see how I'm supposed to be. And then when I compare Jesus to me, I realize I've got a lot of work that he needs to do in me. Because he is my king. But he is also the king of what? Peace. Are you at war with another person? Chances are both of you are not kneeling before the king of peace. Are you in conflict with another person? Chances are the two of you are not kneeling before the king of peace. Because if you kneel before the throne of Jesus, all this bickering that we throw our lives away with becomes meaningless. Meaningless. And I'm not saying that if you don't have hurt that you need to deal with it and all those things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you are bickering and grumbling and have something between you and another person, especially you and another believer, make sure that you're both kneeling before the throne before you yell at each other. And you'll probably yell at each other a whole lot less. Jesus is the king of righteousness. That means that his throne is a throne of what? Righteousness. Well, how do we know what righteousness is? 
Give us a big book. Talks all about it. Are you reading it? Do you know it? If I was to ask you, explain to an unbeliever why it's important that we're righteous. Could you do it? If I was to ask you, explain to an unbeliever in two sentences, what does it mean to be saved? Could you do it? If I was to say, explain to an unbeliever in 30 seconds who Jesus is, could you do it? If I was to ask you the question, who do you say that Jesus is? What is your answer going to be? Is it going to be, well, I think that Jesus is, because I don't really care what you think who Jesus is. I care who he really is. I don't need someone telling me who they think Jesus is. I need Jesus telling me who Jesus is. And that's what the Word of God does for us. That's why we drift, because we anchor ourselves to what some dude on a podcast or dudette says about Jesus. That's why we're straying. That's why we're getting blown around in this world that we're in. I love the Word of God. It's just so good. It's so hard. (laughs) Because as I read it, it's this terrifying mirror (laughs) that I look into and it reveals all of the junk in my own heart. And I'm just so grateful that I have a king who sits on a throne of righteousness and peace. He is not at war against us anymore. Do you realize that? He has made peace with his wrath against mankind, and his offer to every human being is grace. To every human being is forgiveness. To every human being is peace. To every human being is righteousness. How can an unrighteous, sinful people be righteous before the eyes of God? Romans says we do it by faith. The righteous will live by faith, and we trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And this is the call of the book of Hebrews. So the last thing I want to look at is Wherever you're at and whatever you're dealing with right now, I want you to remember what Melchizedek did because this is what Jesus did, that he went out and he met Abraham where he was. Abraham was in this valley. Melchizedek didn't call Abraham up to him. He went to where Abraham was. And he did what? He brought him wine and bread and he blessed him. That is what Jesus is calling each of us to. That's why a few chapters ago, it said that we are supposed to go to the Lord when we need help, to come and find help in time of need. Because he himself suffered in that which he is tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Are you being tempted by something? Cry out for help. Jesus is there to help. He is the king. Do you need to go to the throne of grace? Go to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in your time of need. Go. Don't sit here and tell me all the things that Jesus isn't doing for you. Excuse me? Are you walking forward in the imitation that he constantly has open to you? Or do you just sit back and grumble? So as we look at the rest of this chapter, the next two weeks you're going to look at why it is important that uh, Jesus is who he says he is, basically, and what happened to the Levitical priesthood. Like, why is that no longer how we get access to God? Why? The Jews did it for all these many, 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 many years, and Jesus comes up and says there's something different happening. What is the importance of that? Because when we ask the question, who is Jesus? I, as your pastor, want you to have the true and the right and the righteous answer that leads to righteousness and to peace. So that is the beginning part of good old Melchizedek. And uh, you can call him Mel if you want to, short, but he is a mysterious character in the Bible. 
and it is deep thinking. I don't know if we drew up anything or if we just got hung up in the weeds today, but we're going to continue on in this journey of discovering who Christ is and allowing Melchizedek to be kind of a lens that shines onto the Lord to reveal more of who he is to us. So with that, let's pray and end our time together. Lord, I do love you, and I thank you for just the deep truth of your word. I thank you for your constant call to us. I thank you for the the great consistency with which you love us, that you are never, you don't leave us or forsake us. You don't push us aside. You don't get tired of us. You don't not want to be around us. You don't just sit there and wag your finger at us, but you constantly call us to yourself, call us to righteousness, call us to peace. You offer all of these things that we spend all of our days striving for when we can find them all in you. So would you help us this week, O King of righteousness, O King of peace, to kneel before you in worship and from that posture to do all things. From that posture of surrendered worship, that we would love our spouses well. From that posture of surrendered worship, Lord Jesus, that we would serve well in our workspace. From our posture of surrendered worship, that we would pray for our neighbors, that we would reach out to the lost. From that posture of surrendered worship, that we would seek out those who are asking the question, who is Jesus, and that we would show them who you are. You have given us to be children of light. You have given us the gospel Would you help us take it out and reveal it to a world that truly, truly doesn't know who you are? And Lord, would you help us to walk out the righteousness that you have given us in Christ Jesus? We lift all these things up to you in your risen and exalted name. And it is in that righteous and peaceful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.